Jim, is it you and Sally tonight back there? It's no wonder you're going off for, for a week to get a week away. <clears throat> Psalm 133 um, will, be our, will be our passage this evening and <clears throat> on kind of a related, but related to the text, but not really related to the sermon. I just have thought much this week and as we have with been talking about the providence of God in Sunday school, the, the, the providence of God in action just in the course of events in the last week. And uh, just I've thought that uh, the two messages that I had long previously prepared, how appropriate they are to uh, what we have encountered. <clears throat> and so glad to have that uh, resolved and in the process of resolution, and thank you so much for your for your prayers and your encouragement. Let's go ahead and stand. <clears throat> in Psalm 133, and we'll go ahead and read the title because it is part of the text. A song of degrees of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded his blessing, even life forevermore. And let's pray. Father, I pray for us not just simply that we would read a text about unity and that we would have a message about unity, but that we would enjoy unity, the kind of unity that is found only in you and the kind of unity that is a wonderful, blessed thing for all of your people. And so pray this for us, and I pray your blessing and the special work of your spirit upon us this evening in Jesus name. Amen. And you may of course be seated. <clears throat> well, as I mentioned this morning, I've had a request sometime back about working through the Psalms and I talked a little bit about that. And of course, the holidays for me are always a opportunity. People tend to be traveling and not as many people and it's just a good time to to have occasion to take a break. So this today I just devoted our attention Again, to a couple of psalms, and as always, um, because I consider myself very weak in the psalms in the ability to to comprehend them theologically, I'm always looking for good help and found what I think was some pretty good insight into this psalm, and this was the reason that I chose it for uh, the, the, the message this evening. Quite honestly, when I sat down to prepare it, which has been about a month ago, um, I thought that it would also be appropriate because, of course, for us in the church, this is, we are getting ready to launch uh, the school year. And uh, uh, the school year is just, the school is, by its very nature, uh, a potentially problematic thing. And uh, we, we would all like to have unity when it comes to the school year. And I thought, well, this would, this would be a good thought to have for that. So, so let's turn our attention to the psalm. It is one of a number of psalms I mentioned this morning. 
that the Psalms are not gathered for us chronologically. Number one is not the first in order and then so on, but they are arranged under some themes at times and for a variety of reasons into a collection of what we call books. And there's a, there's a section here that in, we don't debate about what it is, but we debate exactly about it. Not debate, but we question about how it is used. These, these psalms that are called the Song of Degrees or the Psalms of Degree. And the idea is they are of ascent. And the city of Jerusalem is located about 2,500 feet above sea level, which is not really anything you know, special about that, but it is a very small nation and it is very close to the Mediterranean Ocean. And so you go from sea level to 2,500 feet above sea level very quickly. And Jerusalem is perched up there. And any way that you would go to get to Jerusalem, you're going to climb. And so we generally recognize that these songs are a collection of songs that the Israelites would sing as they were climbing the mountain to go to the Lord's temple. This was something that all Jewish men were supposed to do uh, three times in the year, uh, not by accident, some of the most inconvenient times of the year. Right? It would be like the Lord assigning us to, all, all the men in the church have to go to Jerusalem. When do you have to go? Christmas. You have to go Christmas. You have to go. And when do you have to go? Middle of summer. Uh, you have to go. And... Uh, when do you have to go? When is your busiest season of work? You have to go. And uh, <clears throat> they, were, they were all revolving around the, the harvest time of the year. And the men were commanded to go up to worship. And they were to leave their families. And this was something that three times in the year uh, the Jews were supposed to do. It was not really des- deliberately designed to be an inconvenience. But it was deliberately designed to magnify the value of the Lord and of the necessity of trusting in Him in every imaginable way. And so we have this, this little song here that, that I would call, I mean, if we were going to label it, it's probably more in the line of what we would call a chorus than it is of a song. In other words, this morning when we looked at Psalm number 1, we noted that there were three stanzas. Verses 1 and 2 is a stanza, verses 3 and 4 is a stanza, verses 5 and 6 are a stanza. They're each dealing with a separate theme a little bit under the heading of being rightly related to the Lord by his word. We don't have that in Psalm 133. We just have this, again, I don't think that the Hebrews necessarily thought of it as a chorus, but we have this little song that they would sing that all revolves around unity. And and in fact, although I don't think there are two stanzas, but it Right? It, it really kind of goes like this, and this is the way that we're going to look at it. In verse number one, there is the celebration of unity. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. All right, so, so here we go, right? Because I, I mention this all the time when I talk about the Psalms. One of the things that I don't want to do is dissect them to the point of taking the life out of them. But the word behold, for those of you who are grammar geeks, the word behold is what is known as a demonstrative particle. And the whole purpose is 
It is written to call our intense attention to something. It's not just simply an exclamation. It is almost functioning like a command that we are to give some serious contemplation to this subject, how good and pleasant it is for God's people to dwell together in unity. And we know that this is a song of David. What we don't know for certain, but what we can reasonably infer from the life of David is when this was written. In other words, what is it that has caused David to think like this? And, of course, again, this touches a little bit on the subject matter of inspiration, which doesn't really ever come in just kind of a random, there I was minding my own business, not thinking about anything, and God spoke, but almost always has the idea of there's something going on, and God begins to speak to address that, and in so doing that, we have Scripture. We, of course, know that David has been chosen to be the successor king, even while Saul is still alive, that God had told Samuel that he was going to get rid of Saul and he was going to pick him a man after his own heart. And of course, we know the whole scenario of the selection of David, that he is the baby of the family and he is considered to be the least um, qualified to become the king and yet he is the man that God chooses. It is the choice of David as he exists in conjunction with Saul, and as this dawns on Saul, that he is looking at a man who is, right? Here is a man who is a military hero. And Saul is very glad for David's military ability. And here is a man who is his son-in-law. And Saul has mixed feelings about that because Saul is looking at the man who is going to replace him. And not just replace him when he dies of old age as one of his sons would replace him, but who is going to replace him because God has chosen to remove him from the throne. And this creates, folks, a very large division in the nation of Israel. The country is tremendously divided over who their king will be. And in 1 Samuel chapter 31 Saul and his sons, with the exception of Mephibosheth, the the grandson of uh, Saul, they are killed in battle. And they are mutilated and defiled by the Philistines. You would think that the death of Saul would then bring unity to the nation. right? The man that God had picked, that God had removed, we read about that in Sunday school, Acts chapter 13, is out of the way, and you would think that unity would follow, but disunity follows, not unity. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David becomes the king over only part of the nation, a position that he holds for just about seven years. And in fact, 2 Samuel 3.1 tells us there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. There's this ongoing civil war over leadership in Israel. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And as you read it, there's a lot of intrigue and a lot of attempt to put a descendant of Saul on the throne, all of which comes to nothing. And ultimately, in 2 Samuel 5.1, then came all the tribes to David, 
from unto Hebron, spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou was he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and the king David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, and David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. But again, if you look at all the stories carefully and do the math carefully, the actual number is 40 years and 6 months. And 7 years of that, he is the king over only a part of the nation. While he is gaining power in military battles against the household of his predecessor. From that moment... From that moment when in 2 Samuel chapter 5 the the remaining tribes come to him and ask him to be king and he has ratified the king in 2 Samuel 6 which is all part of the, the Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant being relocated, all part of that. The nation of Israel never again fights against itself until David's sin with Bathsheba. And so from very early in his life, about the age of 30, until relatively late in his life, 20 years, 25 years, almost 30 years perhaps, into his reign in Israel, Israel fights its enemies, but it never fights itself. And so it is most likely, we wouldn't go to war over this, but it is most likely that somewhere in the vicinity of the events of 2 Samuel 5, when the civil war is ended, when the remaining leaders of Hebron come and ask David to be the king, and finally David is king over an entire unified nation, that he sits down and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes, Behold, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And you'll notice there that David uses a couple of words. He brings them together in ways that they are not always brought together. David pronounces this unity not only good, but pleasant. It is good. It is good in the way the creation was good. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And it is pleasant. And the word pleasant means just that. It is something that you would enjoy. It is pleasurable. It is desirable. Now here's the reality, folks. Even when we are in the rightest possible relationship with the Lord, there are things that God does in our lives that are good, but are not necessarily enjoyable. We gave a lot of attention to that in the book of Hebrews. Now no chastening for the present time seemeth joyous, but afterward it it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So God is doing something that he would call good in our lives sometimes, but it is not necessarily pleasant to us. And of course, we are sinful people, and so sometimes we are in the pursuit of something that is pleasurable, but is not really good. And so not everything that is good is pleasurable, and not everything that is pleasurable is good. But when brethren dwell together in unity, it is both good and and pleasurable. It is good and pleasurable. This is a thing, folks, that is greatly to be desired. 
So there is the first part, again, verse number, or Psalm number 133. There is the first part of the song, a celebration of unity. This is a good thing. It is morally good. It is good in its character. And it is a good thing in its pleasurable sense of the word. It's a good thing. When brethren dwell together in unity. And what David does then in verse 2 and 3. Is give two illustrations. And we'll spend a little time on those. Because they of course are scriptural illustrations. But they're not necessarily a kind of illustration. That would resonate immediately with us. Out of our modern era. David tell me how you would describe or liken the unity of God's people. What is it like? Right? It's a good thing. It's a pleasant thing. What is it like? Well, it's like this. Verse number two. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. It's like that. Now in Exodus 28 and 29, we can read extensively about those priestly garments. There's a lot of attention given to them. And then in Exodus 30, God gets into the actual anointing of Aaron in his functions as the priest. And there was a a special ointment in verse number 2. Of Psalm 133, it says, It is like the precious ointment upon the head. And in Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 and 23, we have a description of that ointment. Now, there are some things. We all understand that Coca Cola keeps its recipe for Coca Cola closely guarded under lock and key. And we all know that KFC keeps its 11 herbs and spices a closely guarded secret. But here's what God does in Exodus 30. God says, now here's the formula that I'm going to use to make this ointment. So everybody knows what the ingredients are. Now, you're not allowed to make an ointment like that. That's my ointment. That's not your ointment. You can't, you can't do that. Here are the ingredients. You can't do that. Nobody gets to do that. And so it is a precious ointment. It is a limited quantity, limited supply ointment. Now we want to remember, folks, that David is talking about something that he did not witness. When he says, it is like the precious ointment on the head that ran down upon the beard even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. David didn't see that. Aaron had been in heaven a long, long time when David is writing this psalm. There are no photographs that David had that captured the image of that day. What David does have is what we have. God's explanation of the event. Exodus 28.4 These are the garments which they shall make a breastplate and an ephod and a robe and a broidered coat and a mitre 
and a girdle, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron, thy brother, and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And so Aaron put on all of these individual components. The breastplate was something that covered his chest and had some kind of a pouch or pocket in which they could place the Urim and the Thummim. The ephod was like a sleeveless garment. You'll usually find it described as a tunic, something that went over the chest and shoulders as kind of an undershirt for the breastplate. And then there was the robe, and then there was the coat, and then he had a hat, which is called the mitre, and then he has this waistband. It was very ornate and pretty spectacular. And if I can say this, folks, just for the reference of fact, not to be in any way critical, if you look at the priests or the pope in the fullness of their regalia, they have taken their attire out of the Old Testament. They are imitating, copying the accoutrements that the high priest wore. This is what they do. It was really spectacular to see. It was designed to be spectacular in his ministry as the high priest. And then in Leviticus 8.6, we have this account. Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water, and he put upon him the coat, and girded him with the girdle, and clothed him with the robe, put the ephod upon him, and he girded him with the curious girdle of the ephod, and bound it unto him therewith. And he put the breastplate upon him. Also he put in the breastplate the urim and the thummim, and he put the mitre upon his head also. Also upon the mitre, even upon his forefront, did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses, Leviticus 8.12, and he poured the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him. Now that's what David has. He has what you have. He has what I have. He has the Bible. And he is writing about that event, that inaugural event, when Aaron is consecrated as the very first high priest and the precious ointment is placed upon his head. And David obviously has information from the Spirit of the Lord, or perhaps Hebrew tradition, that comes to us that we don't have in the text, that it flowed down from the top of his head where he was anointed, and it flowed all the way down. In other words, folks, Aaron wasn't daubed with a little bit of oil. He wasn't just touched with a little bit of oil. It flowed upon him and it flowed down those sacred garments all the way down to the skirts to the lower part of his robe. So there's the explanation in verse number two. Right? A celebration, verse number one. It's a wonderful thing for God's people to dwell in unity. Really, what's it like? Well, it's like when Aaron got anointed to be the high priest and the oil flowed down his garment from head to toe. Really, what, what else is it like? Well, it's like this. It's like verse number three. It's like the dew of Hermon. And as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life evermore. Now, again, <clears throat> I'm not suggesting that you're 
stupid. I'm just saying that we do not automatically grasp what is being told to us, especially in verse number 3. For me, do is usually more of a nuisance than anything. Some mornings in the summer, I'd like to cut the grass. I like to cut the grass before I come to the office. I don't have to go cut the grass when I get home from the office. And so what do I do? I get up in the morning and I walk out and I walk through the grass to see how bad the dew is. And if there's too much dew, you don't want to cut the grass because everything is soaking wet and they won't work the grass very well. So the dew is not necessarily something that I embrace. But these people live in a desert. And if you live in a desert, every drop of water is precious. And the word dew means dew. It's not a metaphor for something else. It's not a highly nuanced word. It's, it doesn't say dew and really mean downpour. It means dew. And in fact, if you were to get your concordance and just look at the word, you would see that the Bible celebrates dew in a variety of places as a precious thing, as a valuable thing, as something to be treasured and desired, as a very helpful thing. Not at all a nuisance thing but almost a sacred thing. And then just an observation about the geography. What is it like? It is like the dew of Hermon that descended upon Zion. Let's condense it, get to the point. It's like the dew of Hermon that descended upon Zion. Well, Zion is about 2,500 feet above sea level and Israel is a desert. Mount Hermon is about 120 miles to the northeast of Israel. So that if Omaha, Nebraska was Jerusalem, to get to Mount Hermon, you would just about have to go to Storm Lake, Iowa. That's about the distance. Mount Zion is 2,500 feet above sea level. Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet above sea level. It is a mountain that is covered in snow. It is the northern, northeastern boundary of the promised land. Right, where's, the, where's the boundary marker? Well, Mount Hermon is the boundary marker. It is an important mountain to all of the nations in that vicinity because it is the source of so much fresh water. Just as in our world, folks, the mountaintops are covered in snow and the mountains and the snow begins to melt when the weather warms and it flows down and becomes the source of life-giving water. What's it like? It's like that. So David is envisioning dew that originates in Mount Hermon, 120 miles to the northeast, that ends up working its way all the way down to Mount Zion to nourish the people of God, for it is at Mount Zion that God has commanded the blessing, life evermore. So the first verse is a celebration of unity, and the second two verses are an explanation of why it should be celebrated. And upon that basis, then, let me just finally give to you three words that I hope bring the two thoughts together. A celebration of unity because of what it is like. What do we learn? 
Because here's what David is doing. This is a great and wonderful thing. It's a great blessing. And to make sure that his people understood what a great blessing it was, he related it both to a person and to a mountain. So again, let me give to you, I think, three words that help tie the thing together. Why is unity a wonderful, blessed thing? Number one, because of its source. The common denominator in the two explanations, folks, right? One is about a man, one is about a mountain. But the common denominator is that there is something good that starts above and works its way down. It's not that Aaron's feet were anointed and the anointing worked its way up, which God could certainly have done. And it's not that Zion nourishes Hermon. It is that Hermon nourishes Zion. The source of true unity, folks, is above. I would suggest to you that David is speaking rather metaphorically about the fact that the source of unity is God himself. This is how Jesus viewed it in John 17, 21, as part of his prayer, that they all may be one, unified. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now there are all kinds of perhaps even good unities that people pursue. Organizational unity. Denominational unity. But the unity that is good and pleasant is the unity that comes from God alone. The unity that comes from a singular nature. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, Ephesians 4.1, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit. One body, one spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God, Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The source of the kind of unity, folks, that is both good and pleasant is not anchored in us, the bottom, but is anchored in the one who is above the top. Secondly, I think the application points to us, the explanation points to us the spread of unity. That genuine unity from God flows downward. It flows downward like water flows down. It flows down like the sacred anointing oil flows down. That having begun in God, it cannot help but work its way down to the people of God And the third word that I would give you is sweetness. It is good and pleasant. And if we would continue on, folks, and we can't extend this into the mountain, but if we would continue on reading about what happened with Aaron, we have the 
great description of his garments being assembled. And then we get into the book of Leviticus when, and, and we, we, we're getting everything going. And we have the Spirit of the Lord come into the tabernacle and he absolutely fills the place. It is a spectacular moment of time in the nation of his, Israel's history. There is a sweetness to this. David is looking upon the anointing of Aaron with great fondness as a wonderful thing, not, not an empty religious ritual that he had to endure, but a glorious thing. And of course, nobody in David's world needed to be persuaded of the importance of fresh water. There is a sweetness that comes to this unity. And that brings me then in conclusion to this. Where, where are we in this? Right? Unity is celebrated as a wonderful thing. It is explained, illustrated through the priesthood of Aaron and the rain, the, the dew that descends upon the mountain. Well, again, folks, to go back to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians, right? I would point out to you that we are not the source of unity. It doesn't originate with us. It originates with the Lord. But as the Lord's people, we are obligated to be heavily in the pursuit of unity. Endeavoring. Endeavoring is the word in Ephesians 4. To keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That we are not so tightly to cling to what we want or what we are persuaded should be done or should be believed. Now, the great disclaimer, folks, and I'm not trying to develop the whole doctrine, but the great disclaimer is this. We do not debate truth. Right? We do not put truth on the altar for the sake of peace but we put ego on the altar for the sake of peace. We put selfishness on the altar for the sake of peace. We're willing to listen and consider the arguments that have been advanced by others for the sake of peace. We are endeavoring. We are putting some effort into this. Paul tells us in Romans 14, 19, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. We are to do peaceful things not disruptive things. And why is this? Because unity is such a wonderful thing. It is good and pleasant. It is greatly to be desired. Hebrews 12, 14. Follow peace with all men in holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a blot on our character, folks, to be peaceful people in the pursuit of peace. Because unity is a wonderful thing that God treasures. And he, and he even wrote a little chorus about it. How, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Let's go together to the Lord. Father, again, we, we recognize that we are not the source of peace, that you are one and we are one in you. But I pray, Father, for myself 